Welcome to Call and Character, a podcast for not-so-casual conversation about calling, culture, and other things that make for lives worth living. My name is Davey Henriksen, and I teach at Valparaiso University and serve as director of the Institute for Leadership and Service, the sponsor of this podcast. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Jessica Hooten-Wilson, a scholar-in-residence at the University of Dallas. We'll be discussing the ways that good literature forms us as moral beings, the challenges facing students and teachers across the world of K-12 and higher education, and the value of taking a Sabbath from our work. Jessica is also a co-leader with me and several others at The Liberating Arts, a collaborative project that hosts conversations about the challenges and the future of liberal arts education. You can find out more at www.theliberatingarts.org. And now to the conversation. Even for those of us who love to read, literature can seem a luxury at times. The pace of modern life presents a hundred challenges each day that make it simpler to reach for our smartphone or crash after a long day's work or wrestling small children through the bedtime routine rather than immerse ourselves in a good book. But the imaginative world of literature gives us something other than an easy escape. And as the books of our guest today suggest, Literature at its best reminds us that the world is saturated with beauty, meaning, and divine presence, even in the most tedious, challenging, or unlovely parts of life. Jessica Hooten-Wilson is the Louise Cowan Scholar-in-Residence at the University of Dallas. She is the author of Giving the Devil His Due, Flannery O'Connor and the Brothers Karamazov, which received a 2018 Christianity Today Book of the Year Award as well as several books on Walker Percy, Fyodor Dostoevsky, and Alexander Solzhenitsyn. She is the recipient of numerous fellowships, grants, and awards, including a Fulbright Fellowship to the Czech Republic, an NEH grant to study Dante in Florence, and the Biola Center for Christian Thought Sabbatical Fellowship. In 2018, she received the Emerging Public Intellectual Award given by a coalition of North American think tanks in collaboration with the Center for Christian Scholarship at Redeemer University College. And in 2019, she received the Hyatt Prize in Humanities from the Dallas Institute of Humanities and Culture. She's also a collaborator with me and a handful of scholars and administrators on The Liberating Arts, a project that aims to promote the enduring value and liberative potential of liberal arts education. Jessica, it's really a delight to have you on the podcast. Welcome. Oh, thank you. Well, I'm excited to get to talk to a friend about important things for a little while. Me too. So I want to jump right in. You've written books on novelists and thinkers as diverse as Flannery O'Connor, Waka Percy, Dostoevsky, and Solzhenitsyn. You have two Russian Orthodox writers here and two Southern Catholics. So my first, uh, I suppose, somewhat flippant question is, where are all the Yankees and Protestants? <laughs> I think that's a really good question. <laughs> um, <laughs> So actually, the book I am writing right now for Brazos Press is on um, fictional saints in literature, and I'll be writing on Frederick Buechner, I'll be writing on Wendell Berry, Marilyn Robinson. So I'm writing on some of those gaps that I didn't really study early on, but I'm turning my attention towards now. I will say it's been a much more difficult task to find some of these writers in the Protestant sphere, mostly because what I'm finding is a lot of Protestant writers tend to be more didactic and less image oriented than some of the writers like O'Connor and Percy, who are 
Catholic and all about things and senses and sacrament. Mm-hmm. And so it comes more naturally, I think. I think to have kind of these Catholic novelist or Orthodox imaginations lend themselves towards fiction in a way that doesn't always come through in the Protestant imagination. So uh, this is a maybe a more serious version of the question and that will let you kind of unpack uh, the, the authors you have chosen to devote your time and your writing to. How did you come to fall in love with certain authors, uh, whether they're uh, Protestant or Catholic or Orthodox or Yankees mm-hmm. or Southerners? And what made you want to spend time, so much time, in fact, in their company in the first place? The easy answer is that I fell in love with Jesus at a young age. And so I've always been drawn to fiction that taught me more about who God is and my place in the world. And these writers all have like a spiritual urgency about them that brought to the surface things that were invisible and unseen, but I felt were there. And so I was just drawn and attracted to these writers that kind of dug beneath things and showed me where's the meaning? What is God doing? Where is he at work? And kind of stripped away all of the false narratives that were constantly clouding my vision. And these gave such piercing images of, of the world as I, I'd seen it in scriptures and I'd seen it in the practices in the church. And that to me was just beautiful and alluring and exciting. And so I've always been drawn to writers who do that for me. So let's dig a little deeper then into the specific ones you've written on so far. I want to ask you, what is it about the the first, the Southern Catholic context of somebody like O'Connor or Percy, mm-hmm. but also the, the pre and late communist Russian context you have with Dostoevsky and Solzhenitsyn that you find really important or even instructive mm-hmm. for us today? So I guess I'm asking you to be didactic like a good Protestant. <laughs> Yes. Well, it's good to be explicit. I mean, that's the job of the literary critic. C.S. Lewis makes some joke in an experiment in criticism in which he said, you know, I've always learned to love literary critics more by reading the novels, but I've never learned to love a novel more by reading a literary critic. I like that line. That's good. Um, (laughs) So, but it is the role of a literary critic, especially for me. I'm my background is theology and literature. So I'm always trying to unpack the story and see what's the theological truth behind things. So for these writers, especially they're writing in what they perceive to be hostile contexts. St. Jerome wrote in a letter uh, that if you don't perceive yourself as being under persecution, that's when you've been overtaken. You're, You're being the most persecuted when you don't perceive the persecution. So these are writers who are actually aware of the persecution even if the majority of people around them aren't feeling it. So for O'Connor, for example, she saw the ways that we were being persecuted as we were being controlled by advertising agencies. We were being controlled by commercialism. And Walker Percy, the same, what he would call the Los Angelization of culture in which are all being made to conform and be made uh, into products and consumers. And so this was the kind of persecution they saw that was not healthy for the soul And so their fiction is violent in a sense to shock you out of those things. And for me, they're great wake-up calls. So the Russians do the same thing. Of course, their persecution is more pronounced, especially Dostoevsky foresaw the coming of communism, but then for Solzhenitsyn living through it, he felt the persecution, he experienced persecution uh, in his actual life. And so these writers are showing what it's like to be persecuted and then giving us the hope or the way out or the path forward. And that, that to me is necessary, no matter which culture you're in, especially if you're a Christian, 
because you are always being persecuted, even if it's internal and not always external. The persecution angle is interesting. I hadn't, I hadn't thought of that connection between the sets of authors, but I, with O'Connor in particular, that makes sense to me. Uh, she's known in from her short stories, obviously, for her portrayals of what some call dark grace, the sort mm-hmm. of grace that you you don't find on inspirational posters or in mm-hmm. her grace is... <laughs> It's a bit grimy. It's earthy. It's very mm-hmm. human, but suffused with a weird kind of divinity at times too. So I mm-hmm. wanted to ask you if you could say more about how this portrayal of divine presence and mm-hmm. dark grace in the world is meaningful and why it sets some of the authors apart from others. Mm-hmm. Right. The incarnational aesthetic is usually the way it's talked about with Dostoevsky, O'Connor, and Percy. So O'Connor said, it's hard for her that she's for her. The meaning of reality is the incarnation. Everything is about the incarnation. The way she writes is about the incarnation and yet nobody believes in the incarnation. (laughs) So when she's depicting dark grace, as you call it, what she's trying to depict is the fact that God became a human being with all the messiness that's involved in this reality. Right. And for Percy and Dostoevsky, it's the same thing. It's kind of this, um, the divinity is not abstract. It's not mere spirit in a way that's ethereal and untouchable, but the incarnation brings it down into our world. And that should be shocking. In the New Testament, the word that is used is scandalon, right? Where we get our idea of scandal, that it is a, a scandal to those who do not believe this idea that God became a human being. So all of their work in, embodies this scandal of God becoming human or God as human being. And that's what they're depicting in their fiction. I think that's the reason it strikes people as so horrific. Flannery O'Connor used to say that people had the hold of the wrong horror when they found her work horrifying. And what she meant by that is they're usually horrified by the dead body, but that's throughout the Bible. There's all sorts of, you know, uh, Ananias and Sapphira getting struck down and People are, are dying constantly throughout the scriptures. What's hor- And even through the newspapers, right? What's horrifying to most people was the idea that this could be an instrumental act in which the suffering or the, the violence leads to redemption, that God could actually redeem something as horrible as, you know, having a gun at your head or uh, that he could redeem something like a child getting assaulted sexually or something along those lines. And so in her work, people are horrified by the darkness they find, um, or at least they seem to be, they sound like they're horrified about the darkness they find. In reality, they're horrified that the darkness could still be redeemed. So it seems that something like moral horror is like the flip side to the sacred in the sense that it evokes a, a very passionate, almost transcendent response to something that seems either inexpressibly evil or inexpressibly mm-hmm. holy on the side of the sacred. Uh, and there's been a, a cottage industry of, I'd say, both academic and more popular level books about secularization or, or this idea mm-hmm. of re-enchantment after the modern period. Uh, and mm-hmm. I think this has been playing out for several decades now. And literature, the field of literature, seems to be one of the primary places that old narratives about modern enlightenment disenchantment are being challenged, mm-hmm. whether through things like the fantasy novels of Tolkien or Langle or C.S. Lewis, mm-hmm. or 
the gritty novels and short stories of Percy and O'Connor, or this might be a point of contention between us, even the ordinary enchantment <laughs> of rural small town life in Iowa in the novels of Marilyn Robinson. So I wanted mm-hmm. to say, uh, why do you think that literature is unique in its ability to capture moments of divine presence and grace? And what could other academic disciplines stand to learn about secularization from your own field of study? Oh, that's a fantastic question. Well, I would emphasize story. I think that's the nature. And no matter which discipline you're in, there's a way of making story part of education. And the reason that story stands apart from some of those other ways of learning is because it allows for mystery and protects mystery where mystery cannot be reduced or codified. And so if you have a story, you are in conversation with another person about something else. And so it's all these elements that can't be caricatured. They can't be Aesop fabled where it's become, you know, one plus one equals two is the way that you understand the story. You can't reduce it in that way. And I think that literature thus acts against the the secular, which is always a move to kind of control control creation, control uh, the world and our understanding of it, be able to define things uh, in terms that that reduce it to our own limited understanding. And narratives don't allow for that. Narratives remind you of your humble place in trying to understand things. They protect the mystery and the mysterious. G.K. Chesterton talks about how the ordinary person is a mystic in the sense that um, the ordinary person doesn't usually try to reduce the world around them to something they can understand. They assume that they can't understand everything around them. Whereas the more educated you get, and for Chesterton, he saw this all around him, the more educated you get, the more you think you can understand everything, even if it's not in your discipline, that the world is just matter for you to reduce and quantify and put beneath you. And story just doesn't allow you to do that. It keeps people as mystics. So you've been an educator for for some years now, and you're involved now in everything from K to 12 education to all the way up to graduate school training. I wanted to ask Mm -hmm. you more about uh, how you approach the study of literature within this classroom context. How do you make literature appealing Mm -hmm. to the imaginations of kids or high schoolers or young adults? How do you tap into this idea of story and narrative in that specific context? This is what I have found fascinating about students, and this is where I think we are missing the real story of what's going on in education. So I'm going to start with higher education context, but I do want to walk all the way backwards to kindergarten. My experience has primarily been the last 15 years teaching higher ed, and I have been told numerous times by administrators and admissions counselors that students want practical relevant job training and that they are not going to want my classes. What I've actually found is that in all my years of teaching first-year seminars and these first-year students, they are hungry for stories. They get lit up as though they have just been this dying ember and all I had to do was turn a page and read a passage. And all of a sudden, they are lit up from within. And several of them want to pursue it as a continuous study for their degree. 
and then they get pushed back from their parents. What are you possibly going to do with a literature or writing degree? Right. Um, and I had the same pushback, I think for my parents, just kind of talking through the options. What are you going to do with a creative writing degree? Right. Where is that going to get you in the world? Um, and so it's not really the students who aren't desiring these stories and literature, they're not the ones that I usually have to convert. You have a room full of 20-year-olds and you get to read them a passage from C.S. Lewis or from Flannery O'Connor, and you just watch them turn on for the first time in a long time. Uh, so they're the, the ones that are easy to convert just with the stories themselves, just reading the stories aloud to them. It's really the parents that have to be re-educated. And one of the reasons that I've gone back to, I founded a, a classical school here with some, some friends. We started a K through six and we're adding a year, a grade a year. And one of the reasons we did that was not just for the kindergartners. It was because we all have young children that we wanted to see keep this hunger alive and this drive for the love for learning, the love for literature and history and humanities, the liberal arts. Um, this enchantment that should be there in the scientific imagination, this de desire to see the patterns in the world and the love for math, not just for its utility, but also because it's a way of hearing God speak through numbers. Anyways, all of that. I wanted that for the children, but also for the parents. I wanted to be able to talk to the parents about their children as their children are growing up and to talk to them like, do you see what's happening in your kids and how much they're loving this? We want to keep that. We're not a college readiness program. We're a program that is designed to have your kids love learning and chase after wisdom their whole lives. And so part of it was not just educating kids, but also educating parents so that we don't have the same kind of pushback when these kindergartners get into college. So let's shift a little bit from then the K-12 back to higher ed again. Uh, what do you see as the biggest flaw today in, in many colleges and universities with your experience kind of across the educational levels? Are there things that most colleges and universities are, are currently doing or perhaps not doing that are maybe unintentionally undermining the whole process of intellectual and moral formation in the classroom? Yes, 100%. I could talk on this for hours. Accreditation, standardization, quantification drives me up the wall because if I'm going to teach a course, imagine, imagine C.S. Lewis being told he had to fill out a form to ensure the quality of his materials, right? Imagine that you took C.S. Lewis and you said, you know what, before you give a lecture on whatever it is that you're reading about and meditating on and writing, can you make sure that it is meeting all of these standards and that at the end of it, you can say that this course objective has been gained um, at least 20% or 30% by the end of this semester? And what exactly are the activities that you're going to be doing that's going to ensure this quality of learning? Um, it's not actually ensuring quality happens in the classroom. It's actually destroying quality in the classroom. The education of a student is a matter of a relationship between a passionate professor who has dedicated her life to loving these things and then is training the student to love them as well. They get to walk beside each other as they're learning and then that student takes over and finds what he or she wants to love and dedicate their lives to and to be able to share with others. It should be so much more like dining at a banquet than filling out a flowchart. And the more that we make education into something that you have a checkbox to, we've lost essentially what it means to educate human beings. 
So I want to now find out what you put down for the learning goals and outcomes on your survey. <laughs> Well, and that's the thing. I, I really, I hate filling those things out so much. I almost have a visceral response to it. And when I do, you know, I, it's like, I want you to learn to love what is true and good and beautiful and know how to tell other people about it. I want you to be able to have a conversation in which you can make arguments and not just have opinions about things. These are my learning objectives in my classroom. All right, so let's continue to dive into the mess of higher education for at least one more question here. Uh, sure. I've asked uh, this question of others who've um, on the podcast who have had some experience weathering uh, many storms in the higher ed, some of them just over the past six to nine months. This past summer was devastating for a, a lot of us working at various colleges and universities. Uh, we saw colleagues let go or furloughed or programs discontinued, entire departments closed up. And lots of us uh, were forced to rethink, you know, what's really central to our vocation. Like, is this what I'm called to do? And what is my vocation going to look like in the changing landscape of higher education with all the financial and existential questions that kind of hem us in now? So with all of this uncertainty, this is the question now, finally, <laughs> it seems a luxury <laughs> to talk about moral character or truth, beauty, and goodness. Mm -hmm. So is there still a central place for moral formation in the university during very austere days, or is that a peripheral concern when you're just trying to survive? Mm. Well, for me, I guess I, I'm not trying to survive. <laughs> so I, um, you know, I have a really good friend of mine who's a philosopher at the school I previously worked at, and I resigned my university position because during COVID, they were having to up the faculty efficiency ratio it, don't you love that language? It sounds like something from Lewis's hideous strength, right? Um, yeah. <laughs> but what it meant was we have to ask our faculty who all have different roles on the team. Some are scholars, some are amazing teachers, some are administrators to all become egalitarian. And so you all have to teach the same amount of courses for the same amount of pay, no matter what you were previously excelling at. And so if I was excelling at a, as a scholar and I was bringing that into my classroom. I was teaching less numbers of courses so that I could continue to make those commitments to write books and to do podcasts such as this one and do speaking um, because that's where my talents were. And so I felt myself almost part of a, a church. It was a beautiful um, understanding of the different gifts that God has given us. And instead it became, you have to teach so many classes that are actually going to prevent you to do the things God called you to do. And I am not a survivalist. Um, <laughs> for me, my highest calling is to answer what God's asked of me. And so I resigned. And so my, my friend who was at that university said, when he writes my biography, he's going to start with the story of when I resigned during an oncoming recession and a <laughs> nationwide hiring freeze in higher ed. <laughs> um, <laughs> I think I think we have to stop seeing ourselves as trying to survive. It's kind of, if we instead envision ourselves first as the church, even no matter where we're placed, if we're placed in the academy, we are still the church first and foremost. Our work in the church might be in higher ed, but either way, we're always disciples first. We're always apostles first. And for the apostles, when you read the book of Acts, you know, they aren't going to stay in the cities that reject them and push them out. They're going to go to the next city. And I think we have to be listening for that and go where we're invited, 
go where we can flourish. I don't think we should continue doing things um, that do not fit the kingdom and, and doing it just to survive. I think we're losing the kingdom. We're losing the ground underneath us. So I am not a pessimist when it comes to higher ed. And I'm always excited to see what, what God does at different levels of education or where he's going to use my gifts because it could be in any different place at any time. And I'm okay with that. I still want to invest in higher education because I don't want it to be lost. I think it's a, it's a beautiful good, especially for our country. We need people who are good citizens and who are good neighbors and so forth. And so I do want to invest in that, um, but I am not willing to do whatever administration asks of me for a paycheck. I, I trust God too much to deliver me towards a paycheck uh, by using my gifts for that. All right. So we've talked about uh, persecution, moral horror, <laughs> the fact that higher education is about to careen off a cliff. So <laughs> I wanted to turn this in a little more positive direction. And I actually wanted to share uh, somewhat randomly a, a longer paragraph that I was reading just yesterday from Abraham Heschel's wonderful little book uh, on the Sabbath. And then I'll, I'll, I want to ask mm. you to reflect on it with me. So this is from Heschel. He writes, he who wants to enter the holiness of the day must first lay down the profanity of clattering commerce, of being yoked to toil. He must go away from the screech of dissonant days, from the nervousness and fury of acquisitiveness and the betrayal in embezzling his own life. He must say farewell manual work and learn to understand that the world has already been created and will survive without the help of man. Six days a week, we wrestle with the world, wringing profit from the earth. On the Sabbath, we especially care for the seed of eternity planted in the soul. The world has our hands, but our soul belongs to someone else. Six days a week, we seek to dominate the world. On the seventh day, we try to dominate the self. Mm -hmm. All right, so that, that ends the most elegant portion of the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> but this is what I want to ask you to, to reflect on this passage. Uh, it's been a long year, Jessica. It's been an exhausting <laughs> year for mm -hmm. lots of folks, but specifically for educators and administrators mm -hmm. in higher education. So are there ways that you choose to keep a sort of Sabbath, what, what Heschel is describing here, taking an intentional break from chaos and commerce in order to find some peace and rest? Yes. Um, I'll talk about my own practices, but I also want to mention something I do with students because, you know, we read Wendell Berry's Sabbath poem from 1970 um, about when he says that you basically can plant and then you have to go to sleep and the Lord provides the growing. He says it much better than that. But, um, but it's this, the same idea as Heschel that, um, we were not made to be to-do lists. And so what I do with students when we read that poem is I ask them to imagine a day where they don't accomplish anything, where there's not a to-do list. Do they think that they are still worth something if they don't do anything? And my students have a great trouble imagining that being is what's worthwhile and not just doing. They very much associate their doing with their identity. And um, so, you know, we, we often talk about babies and how babies don't have to do anything to be worthwhile. <laughs> they just exist. And their very existence 
is a delight to God, just like it's a delight to us. And we have to imagine ourselves somewhat like a baby before the creator and that we don't have to accomplish anything to be loved by him. And, um, and so I, when I imagine myself and trying to have those practices as an adult, so a lot of people look at the work that I seem to be able to accomplish and they imagine that I'm just a workaholic, that I'm constantly go, 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 go. In reality, I only have 24 hours a week that I have childcare. And during those 24 hours, my student, my kids are in school, preschool through second grade. And the rest of the time I'm with them and we play together on Friday. We do absolutely no work on Friday. Uh, We usually do a lot of cleaning on Saturday and then we worship it on Sunday and spend it with our friends. And so I have three out of my four days a week that I'm not working and I don't work after my kids get home. My phone gets turned off. Um, on the best days, my phone gets turned off on the days where my extrovert nature, and I actually just talked about this on Twitter yesterday, because as an extrovert, I will say the quarantine is so hard that sometimes I just get on Twitter because I feel like I need people. (laughs) And then I'm I'm like, well, that was actually unsatisfying because what I really want is to pour a friend a drink and read poetry together and have a conversation. And Twitter just doesn't do that. So it's this false invitation that it's giving me to feel like I'm not by myself. Um, But like Heschel says, it's actually a distraction from real investment in, in who I am and, and what it means to be a person, which has a lot more to do with conversations and with friendship. So I'm looking forward to filling those hours with real friendship and not being distracted by the false friendship that's offered through social media during this specific season of time. Um, I do look forward with great hope and anticipation to the end of this season. And um, if I could make a recommendation, I would say read the quarantine poems of people like Malcolm Geit, James Matthew Wilson, Angela O'Donnell, to remember that this is not going to be the end of things, that there is beauty beyond this, And I think those poems give great insight and perspective and prophecy towards towards the end of the quarantine. My concluding question, which I I put to most of our our guests, is this. Drawing on your own experience as an educator across multiple levels, of course, but also as an author, can you name two or three living exemplars that merit our attention if we want to model how to lead lives worth living? Yeah, absolutely. So I would say um, the poets that I just mentioned are great. I think following poets are very good models because they're having to take the time and space it needs to be able to name things accurately, be able to see things accurately. Um, The first people that I think of are actual are teachers of mine. And uh, Ralph Wood and David Lyle Jeffrey were teachers that I had at Baylor that I continue to stay in contact with. And the reason that I choose them is not just because they were teachers. And of course, there's writings that other people can benefit from reading these men. But what I find more beneficial and it's been more fruitful for me is they have shown me how to live. That for them, the study of the Bible or the study of literature was not a separate abstract exercise, but they were seeking wisdom and then trying to share wisdom in their work. And it fed into how they lived their lives. They, they taught Sunday school. They were with their children. They invested in other people. They recited poetry when they spoke. <laughs> they constantly were living these lives that were embodiments of the things they professed. And I think that's what you have to look for in models is that people 
are not just full of words, but that their life actually shows that they believe them. Well, thank you so much. Uh, as always, Jessica, it's, it's wonderful talking with you. The conversation is always excellent. And uh, I hope that our listeners will also enjoy uh, we were able to share as well as the many poetry and uh, fictional uh, examples and recommendations that you offered. So thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you, Davey. Thanks for listening to Call in Character, a podcast from the Institute for Leadership and Service at Valparaiso University. If you have any feedback or questions, follow us on the Institute's Facebook page or send an email to lead.serve at valpo.edu. Our production team includes Aaron Morrison and Kim Neiman. Please subscribe to Call and Character on iTunes, Spotify, and other places podcasts are found. And leave us a comment and a rating. Until next time. (laughs) 